The Season of Duty The sixth season requiring this diligence in keeping the heart is the season of duty. Our hearts must be closely watched and kept when we draw near to God in public, private, or secret duties, for the vanity of the heart seldom discovers itself more than at such times. How often does the poor soul cry out, O Lord, how gladly would I serve you, but vain thoughts will not let me. I come to open my heart to you, to delight my soul in communion with you, but my corruptions oppose me. Lord, call off these vain thoughts and allow them not to prostitute the soul that is wedded to you. The question then is this, how may the heart be kept from distractions by vain thoughts in time of duty? There is a twofold distraction or wandering of the heart in duty. First, voluntary and habitual distractions. They set not their heart aright, and their spirit was not steadfast with God. Psalm 78, verse 8. This is the case of formalists, and it proceeds from the lack of a holy inclination of the heart to God. Their hearts are under the power of their lusts, and therefore it is no wonder that they go after their lusts, even when they are around holy things. Secondly, involuntary and lamented distractions. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me, O wretched man that I am. Romans chapter 7 verses 21 through 24, etc. This proceeds not from the lack of a holy inclination or aim, but from the weakness of grace and the lack of vigilance in opposing and dwelling sin. But it is not my business to show you how these distractions come into the heart, but rather how to get them out and prevent their future admission. 1. Sequester yourself from all earthly employments and set apart some time for solemn time to meet God in duty. You cannot come directly from the world into God's presence without finding a flavor of the world in your duties. It is with the heart, a few minutes since being plunged into the world and now in the presence of God, as it is with the sea after a storm, which still continues working, muddy and disquiet, though the wind is quiet and the storm is over. Your heart must have some time to settle. Few musicians can take an instrument and play upon it without some time and effort to tune it. Few Christians can say with David, My heart is fixed, O God, my heart is fixed. Psalm 62, verse 7. When you go to God in any duty, take your heart aside and say, O my soul, I am now engaged in the greatest work that a creature was ever employed in. I am going into the solemn presence of God on business of everlasting consequence. O my soul, leave trifling now. Be composed. Be watchful. Be serious. This is no common work. It is soul work. It is work for eternity. It is work which will bring forth fruit to life or death in the world to come. Pause a while and consider your sins, your needs, your troubles. Ponder these thoughts for a while before you address yourself to duty. David first mused and then spoke with his tongue. Psalm 39 verse 3. 2. Having first composed your heart by meditation, immediately set a guard upon your senses. How often are Christians in danger of losing the eye of their mind by the eyes of their body? David prayed against this. Scripture, Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity, and quicken thou me in thy way. Psalm 119 verse 37. This may serve to illustrate the Arabian proverb, Shut the windows, that the house may be light. It would be good if you could say when you start, as a devout man once said when he came from the performance of duty, Be shut, O my eyes, be shut, for it is impossible that you should ever discern such beauty and glory in any creature as I have now seen in God. You must avoid all instances of external distractions and take in that intenseness of spirit in the work of God which locks up the eye and ear against vanity. 3. Beg God for a subdued imagination. A fertile imagination, however much it is admired among men, is a great snare to the soul, unless it works in fellowship with right reason and a sanctified heart. The imagination is a power of the soul, placed between the senses and the understanding. 
it is that which first stirs itself in the soul, and by its motions the other powers of the soul are brought into exercise. It is that in which thoughts are first formed, and as that is, so are they. If imaginations are not first cast down, it is impossible that every thought of the heart should be brought into obedience to Christ. The imagination is naturally the wildest and most untamable power of the soul. Some Christians have much to do with it. The more spiritual the heart is, the more a wild and vain imagination disturbs and perplexes it. It is a sad thing that one's imagination should call off the soul from waiting on God when it is engaged in communion with Him. Pray earnestly and perseveringly that your imagination may be chastened and sanctified. When this is accomplished, your thoughts will be regular and fixed. 4. If you would keep your heart from vain excursions when engaged in duties, realize to yourself by faith the holy and solemn presence of God. If the presence of a great man would compose you to seriousness, how much more should the presence of a holy God? Do you think that you would dare to be jovial and vain if you realized the presence and inspection of the divine being? Remember where you are when engaged in religious duty, and act as if you believed in the omniscience of God. All things are naked and opened unto the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. Realize His infinite holiness, His purity, His spirituality. Strive to obtain an understanding of the greatness of God that will appropriately affect your heart, and remember His jealousy over His worship. Scripture. This is it that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. Leviticus chapter 10 verse 3. A man that is praying, says Bernard, should behave himself as if he were entering into the court of heaven, where he sees the Lord upon his throne, surrounded with ten thousand of his angels and saints ministering unto him. When you come from an activity in which your heart has been wandering and listless, what can you say? Suppose all the vanities and impertinences which have passed through your mind during a devotional exercise were written down and inserted with your petitions. Could you have the audacity to present them to God? If your tongue should utter all the thoughts of your heart when attending the worship of God, would not men abhor you? Yet your thoughts are perfectly known to God. O oh, think on this scripture. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints, and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. Psalm 87 verse 7. Why did the Lord descend in thunderings and lightnings and dark clouds upon Sinai? Why did the mountains smoke under him, the people quake and tremble round about him, even Moses himself? It was to teach the people this great truth. Scripture, Let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews chapter 12 verses 28 through 29. Such understanding of the character and presence of God will quickly reduce a heart inclined to vanity to a more serious attitude. 5. Maintain a prayerful attitude of heart in the intervals of duty. What reason can be given why our hearts are so dull, so careless, so wandering when we hear or pray, but that there have been long intermissions in our communion with God? If that divine zeal, that spiritual fervor, and those holy impressions which we obtain from God while engaged in the performance of one duty were preserved to enliven and engage us in the performance of another, they would be of incalculable service to keep our hearts serious and devout. For this purpose, frequent emotional utterances between stated and solemn duties are of most excellent use. They not only preserve the mind in a composed and pious frame, but they also connect one stated duty, as it were, with another, and keep the attention of the soul alive to all its interests and obligations. 6. If you want to stop the distraction of your thoughts, then endeavor to raise your cares to God and to engage them warmly in your duty. When the soul is intent on any work, it gathers its strength and bends all its thoughts to that work. 
When it is deeply affected, it will pursue its object with intenseness, and the affections will gain an ascendancy over the thoughts and guide them. But deadness causes distraction, and distraction increases deadness. If you could regard your duties as the method in which you might walk in communion with God, in which your soul might be filled with those ravishing and matchless delights which His presence affords, you would have no inclination to neglect them. If you would prevent the recurrence of distracting thoughts, if you would find your happiness in the performance of duty, you must not only be careful that you engage in what is your duty, but also work with patient and persevering exertion to interest your feelings in it. Why is your heart so inconsistent, especially in secret duties? Why are you ready to be gone almost as soon as you have come into the presence of God? It is because your thoughts are not engaged. 7. When you are disturbed by vain thoughts, humble yourself before God and call in assistance from heaven. Never treat wandering thoughts in duty as small matters. Follow every such thought with a deep regret. Turn to God with such words as these, Lord, I came here to commune with you, and here a busy adversary and a vain heart conspiring together have opposed me. O my God, what a vile heart have I! Will I never wait upon you without distraction? When will I enjoy an hour of free communion with you? Grant me your assistance at this time. Reveal your glory to me, and my heart will recover quickly. I came here to enjoy you, and will I go away without you? Behold my distress and help me. If you would sufficiently lament your distractions and go to God for deliverance from them, you would get relief. 8. Look at the success and the comfort of your duties as if the keeping of your heart close to God depended very much on them. These two things, the success of duty and the inward comfort arising from the performance of it, are unspeakably dear to the Christian, but both of these will be lost if the heart is in a listless state. Scripture Surely God will not hear vanity, neither will the Almighty regard it. Job chapter 35 verse 13 The promise is made to a heart engaged. And ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart. Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 13. When you find your heart under the power of deadness and distraction, say to yourself, O oh, what do I lose by a careless heart now? My praying seasons are the most valuable portions of my life. If I could raise my heart to God, I might obtain such mercies as would be a matter of praise to all eternity. 9. Regard your carefulness or carelessness in this matter as sure evidence of your sincerity or of your hypocrisy. Nothing will alarm an upright heart more than this. What? Should I give way to a customary wandering of the heart from God? Should the spot of the hypocrite appear upon my soul? Hypocrites indeed can drudge on in the round of duty, never regarding the condition of their hearts. Ezekiel chapter 33 verses 31 through 32. But should I do so? Never, never let me be satisfied with empty duties. Never let me take my leave of a duty until my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 10. It will be of special use to keep your heart with God in duty, to consider what influence all your duties will have upon your eternity. Your religious seasons are your seed times, and in the eternal world, you must reap the fruits of what you sow in your duties here. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption. If you sow to the Spirit, you will reap everlasting life. Answer seriously these questions. Are you willing to reap the fruit of vanity in the world to come? Do you dare say, when your thoughts are roving to the ends of the earth in duty, when you scarcely mind what you say or hear, Now, Lord, I am sowing to the Spirit. Now I am providing and laying up for eternity. Now I am seeking for glory, honor, and immortality. Now I am striving to enter in at the narrow gate. Now I am taking the kingdom of heaven by holy violence. Such reflections are well calculated to dissipate vain thoughts. When We Receive Injuries and Abuses from Men The seventh season, which requires more than common diligence to keep the heart, 
is when we receive injuries and abuses from men. Such is the depravity and corruption of man that one becomes as a wolf or a tiger to another. As men are naturally cruel and oppressive one to another, so the wicked conspire to abuse and wrong the people of God. Scripture, the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13. Now, when we are abused and wronged, it is hard to keep the heart from revengeful actions, to make it meekly and quietly commit the cause to him that judges righteously, or to prevent any sinful actions. The spirit that is in us lusts for revenge, but that must not happen. We have choice aids in the gospel to keep our hearts from sinful actions against our enemies and to sweeten our embittered spirits. Do you ask how a Christian can keep his heart from revengeful actions under the greatest injuries and abuses from men? I reply, when you find your heart begin to be inflamed by revengeful feelings, immediately reflect on the following things. 1. Remind your heart of the severe prohibitions of revenge contained in the Word of God. However gratifying to your corrupt propensities revenge may be, remember that it is forbidden. Hear the Word of God. Say not thou, I will recompense evil. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 22. Say not, I will do so to him as he hath done so to me. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 29. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. On the contrary, Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. Romans chapter 12, verses 17, 19, and 20. It was an argument urged by the Christians to prove their religion to be supernatural and pure that it forbids revenge, which is so agreeable to our human nature. And it is to be desired that such an argument might not be laid aside. Awe your heart, then, with the authority of God in the Scriptures. And when carnal reason says, My enemy deserves to be hated, let conscience reply, But does God deserve to be disobeyed? Thus and thus has he done, and so has he wronged me. But what has God done that I should wrong him? If my enemy dares boldly to break my peace, should I be so wicked as to break God's law? If he fears not to wrong me, should not I fear to wrong God? Thus let the fear of God restrain and calm your feelings. 2. Look at the most eminent patterns of meekness and forgiveness so that you will feel the force of their example. This is the way to cut off the common pleas of flesh and blood for revenge, which are this. No man would bear such an affront. Yes, others have borne as bad and worse ones. But I will be acknowledged as a coward a fool if I pass this by. That is of no concern to you, so long as you follow the examples of the wisest and holiest of men. Never did anyone suffer more or greater abuses from men than Jesus. Nor did anyone ever endure insult and reproach and every kind of abuse in a more peaceful and forgiving manner. When he was reviled, he did not revile back. When he suffered, he did not threaten. When his murderers crucified him, he prayed, Father, forgive them. Herein he has set an example for us, that we should follow in his steps. Thus his apostles imitated him. Scripture, Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 12-13 I have often heard it reported of Mr. Dodd that when a man enraged at his close, convincing doctrine assaulted him, struck him on the face, and dashed out two of his teeth, that meek servant of Christ spit out the teeth and blood into his hand and said, See here, you have knocked out two of my teeth, and that without any just provocation. But on condition that I might do your soul good, I would give you permission to knock out all the rest. Here was exemplified the excellency of the Christian spirit. So strive for this spirit, which constitutes the true excellence of Christians. Do what others cannot do, 
keep this spirit in exercise, and you will preserve peace in your own soul and gain the victory over your enemies. 3. Consider the character of the person who has wronged you. He is either a godly man or a wicked man. If he is a godly man, there is light and tenderness in his conscience, which sooner or later will bring him to know the evil of what he has done. If he is a godly man, Christ has forgiven him greater injuries than he has done to you. Why should you not forgive him? Will Christ not rebuke him for any of his wrongs but frankly forgive them all? Will you take him by the throat for some petty abuse which he has done to you? But if a wicked man has injured or insulted you, truly you have more reason to exercise pity than revenge toward him. He is in a deluded and miserable state, a slave to sin and an enemy to righteousness. If he should ever repent, he will be ready to give you compensation. If he continues unrepentant, there is a day coming when he will be punished to the extent of his actions. You do not need to study revenge. God will execute vengeance upon him. 4. Remember that by revenge you can only gratify a sinful passion which by forgiveness you might conquer. Suppose that by revenge you might destroy one enemy, yet by exercising the Christian's temper you might conquer three enemies at once, your own lust, Satan's temptation, and your enemy's heart. If by revenge you should overcome your enemy, the victory would be unhappy and inglorious, for in achieving it you would be overcome by your own corruption. But by exercising a meek and forgiving temper, you will always come off with honor and success. It must be a very vile person indeed upon which meekness and forgiveness will not operate. That must be a flinty heart which this fire will not melt. Thus David gained such a victory over Saul his persecutor, that Saul lifted up his voice and wept, and he said to David, Thou art more righteous than I. 1 Samuel 14, verse 17. 5. Seriously propose this question to your own heart. Have I gotten any good by means of the wrongs and injuries which I have received? If they have done you no good, turn your revenge upon yourself. You have reason to be filled with shame and sorrow that you should have a heart which can deduce no good from such troubles, and that your temper should be so unlike that of Christ. The patience and meekness of other Christians have turned all the injuries offered to them to a good account. Their souls have been animated to praise God when they have been loaded with reproaches from the world. I thank my God, said Jerome, that I am worthy to be hated of the world. But if you have derived any benefit from the reproaches and wrongs which you have received, if they have caused you to examine your own heart, if they have made you more careful about how you conduct your life, if they have convinced you of the value of a sanctified temper, will you not forgive them? Will you not forgive one who has been instrumental in so much good to you? What, though he meant it for evil? If through the divine blessing your happiness has been promoted by what he has done, why do you even have a hard thought of him? 6. Consider by whom all your troubles are ordered. This will be of great use to keep your heart from revenge. This will quickly calm and sweeten your temper. When Shimei railed at David and cursed him, the spirit of that godly man was not at all poisoned by revenge. When Abishai offered him, if he pleased, the head of Shimei, the king said, So let him curse, because the Lord hath said unto him, Curse David. Who shall then say, Wherefore hast thou done so? 2 Samuel 16, verse 10 It may be that God uses him as his rod to chastise me, because by my sin I gave the enemies of God occasion to blaspheme, and can I be angry with the instrument? How irrational that is! Thus Job was quieted. He did not rail and meditate revenge upon the Chaldeans and Sabaeans, but regarded God as the orderer of his troubles, and said, The Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job chapter 1, verse 21. 7. Consider how you wrong God every day and hour. 
then you will not be so easily inflamed with revenge against those who have wronged you. You are constantly disrespecting God, yet He does not take vengeance on you, but bears with you and forgives. Will you rise up and avenge yourself upon others? Reflect on this cutting rebuke. Scripture O thou wicked servant! I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desiredst me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? Matthew chapter 18, verses 32-33 No one should be so filled with patience and mercy to such of those who wrong them as those who have experienced the riches of mercy themselves. The mercy of God to us should melt our hearts into mercy toward others. It is impossible that we should be cruel to others unless we forget how kind and compassionate God has been to us. And if kindness cannot prevail in us, I think fear should. Scripture If ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Matthew chapter 6, verse 15. 8. Let the knowledge that the day of the Lord is drawing near restrain you from anticipating it by acts of revenge. Why are you so hasty? Is not the Lord at hand to avenge all His abused servants? Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth. You too be patient, because the Lord's coming is near. Grudge not against each other, brothers, or you will be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. James chapter 5, verses 7-9 through Vengeance belongs to God, and will you wrong yourself so much as to assume His work? When We Meet With Great Trials The eighth season in which special exertion is necessary to keep the heart is when we meet with great trials. In such cases, the heart is apt to be suddenly transported with pride, impatience, or other sinful passions. Many good people are guilty of hasty and very sinful conduct in such instances. We all need to use diligently the following means to keep our hearts submissive and patient under great trials. 1. Think humble and unesteemed thoughts about yourself. The humble man is always the patient man. Pride is the source of irregular and sinful passions. A lofty spirit will be an unyielding and irritable spirit. When we overrate ourselves, we think that we are treated unworthily, that our trials are too severe. Then we quibble and complain. Christian, you should have thoughts about yourself that would stop these murmurings. You should have lower and more humiliating views of yourself than anyone else has of you. Get humility, and you will have peace, whatever your trial is. 2. Cultivate a habit of communion with God. This will prepare you for whatever may happen. This will so sweeten your temper and calm your mind to safeguard you against surprises. This will produce that inward peace which will make you superior to your trials. Habitual communion with God will give you enjoyment which you will never want to interrupt by sinful feelings. When a Christian is calm and submissive under his afflictions, he can derive support and comfort in this way. But he who is upset, impatient, or fretful shows that everything is not right inside of himself. It cannot be assumed that he is having communion with God. 3. Let your mind be deeply impressed with an apprehension of the evil nature and effects of an unsubmissive and restless temper. It grieves the Spirit of God and prompts His departure. His gracious presence and influence are enjoyed only where peace and quiet submission prevail. The indulgence of such a temper gives the adversary an advantage. Satan is an angry and discontented spirit. He finds no rest except in restless hearts. He rouses himself when the spirits are in commotion. Sometimes he fills the heart with ungrateful and rebellious thoughts. Sometimes he inflames the tongue with indecent language. Again, such a temper brings great guilt upon the conscience, disqualifies the soul for any duty, and dishonors the Christian name. O keep your heart, 
and let the power and excellence of your religion be chiefly manifested when you are brought into the greatest distress. 4. Consider how desirable it is for a Christian to overcome his evil propensities, how much more present happiness it gives, how much better it is in every respect to deaden and subdue unholy feelings than to give way to them. When you are on your deathbed and you calmly review your life, how comfortable will it be to reflect on the conquest which you have made over the wicked feelings of your heart? It was a memorable saying of Valentinian the emperor when he was about to die. Among all my conquests, there is but one that now comforts me. When asked what that was, he answered, I have overcome my worst enemy, my own sinful heart. 5. Shame yourself by contemplating the character of those who have been most distinguished by meekness and submission. Above all, compare your temper with the Spirit of Christ. Learn of me, he said, for I am meek and lowly in heart. It is said of Calvin and Urson, though both of hot-tempered natures, that they had so imbibed and cultivated the meekness of Christ as not to utter an unfitting word under the greatest provocations and even many of the heathens have manifested great moderation and patience under their severest afflictions. Is it not a shame and a reproach that you should be outdone by them? 6. Avoid everything which is calculated to irritate your feelings. It is true spiritual valor to keep as far as we can out of sin's way. If you can avoid the excitements to hasty and rebellious feelings, or check them in their first beginnings, you will have little to fear. The first workings of common sins are comparatively weak. They gain their strength by degrees. But in times of trial, the motions of sin are strongest at first, and the unsubdued temper breaks out suddenly and violently. But if you resolutely withstand it at first, it will yield and give you the victory. The Hour of Temptation The ninth season, wherein the greatest diligence and skill are necessary to keep the heart, is the hour of temptation, when Satan attacks the Christian's heart and takes the unsuspecting by surprise. To keep the heart at such times is as much a mercy as it is a duty. Few Christians are so skillful in detecting the fallacies and repelling the arguments by which the adversary incites them to sin, as to come off safe and whole in these encounters. Many eminent Christians have been severely burned for their lack of watchfulness and diligence at such times. How, then, can a Christian keep his heart from yielding to temptation? There are several principal ways in which the adversary insinuates temptation and urges compliance. 1. Satan suggests that here is pleasure to be enjoyed. The temptation is presented with a smiling aspect and an enticing voice. What, are you so dull and phlegmatic as not to feel the powerful charms of pleasure? Who can withhold himself from such delights? Listener, you may be rescued from the danger of such temptations by resisting the first proposal of pleasure. It is urged that the commission of sin will afford you pleasure. Suppose this were true. Will the accusing and condemning rebukes of conscience and the flames of hell be pleasant too? Is there pleasure in the scourges of conscience? If so, why did Peter weep so bitterly? Why did David cry out of broken bones? You hear what is said of the pleasure of sin, and have you not read what David said of the effects of it? Scripture Thine arrows stick fast in me, and thy hand presseth me sore. There is no soundness in my flesh because of thine anger, neither is there any rest in my bones because of my sin. Psalm 38 verses 2 through 8. If you yield to temptation, you must feel such inward distress on account of it or the miseries of hell. But why should the pretended pleasure of sin allure you when you know that unspeakably more real pleasure will arise from the subduing of sin than can arise from the commission of sin? Do you prefer the gratification of some unhallowed passion with the deadly poison which it will leave behind to that sacred pleasure which arises from fearing and obeying God, complying with the dictates of conscience, and maintaining inward peace? Can sin give any such delight as he feels 
who by resisting temptation has manifested the sincerity of his heart and obtained evidence that he fears God, loves holiness, and hates sin. 2. The secrecy with which you may commit sin is made use of to induce compliance with temptation. The tempter insinuates that this indulgence will never disgrace you among men, for no one will know it. But think to yourself, does not God see you? Is not the divine presence everywhere? If you can hide your sin from the eyes of the world, you cannot hide it from God. No darkness nor shadow of death can screen you from His inspection. Besides, have you no respect for yourself? Can you do that by yourself which you do not want others to see? Is not your conscience like a thousand witnesses? Even a heathen could say, when you are tempted to commit sin, fear yourself without any other witness. 3. The prospect of worldly advantage often enforces temptation. It is suggested, why should you be so precise and careful? Give yourself a little liberty and you might make your situation better. Now is your time. This is a dangerous temptation and must be promptly resisted. Yielding to such a temptation will do your soul more injury than any earthly acquisition can possibly do you good. And what would it profit you if you should gain the whole world and lose your own soul? What can be compared with the value of your spiritual interests? Or what can at all compensate for the smallest injury of them? 4. Perhaps the smallness of the sin is urged as a reason why you may commit it. It is but a little sin, a small matter, a trifle. Who would stand upon such niceties? But is the majesty of heaven little too? If you commit this sin, you will offend a great God. Is there any little hell to torment little sinners in? No. The least sinners in hell are full of misery. There is great wrath treasured up for those whom the world regards as little sinners. But the less the sin, the less the inducement to commit it. Will you provoke God for a trifle? Will you destroy your peace, wound your conscience, and grieve the Spirit all for nothing? What madness is this? 5. An argument to enforce temptation is sometimes drawn from the mercy of God and the hope of pardon. God is merciful. He will pass by this as an illness. He will not be severe to correct it. But stop! Where do you find a promise of mercy to presumptuous sinners? Involuntary falls and lamented infirmities may be pardoned, but the soul that doeth aught presumptuously, the same reproacheth the Lord, and that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Numbers chapter 15 verse 30. If God is a being of so much mercy, how can you disrespect him? How can you make so glorious an attribute as the divine mercy an occasion for sin? Will you wrong God because he is good? Rather, let his goodness lead you to repentance and keep you from transgression. 6. Sometimes Satan encourages the commission of sin from the examples of devout men. Thus and thus they sinned and were restored. Therefore, the enemy suggests that you may commit this sin and still be a saint and be saved. Such suggestions must be instantly repelled. If good men have committed sins similar to that with which you are troubled, did any good man ever sin upon such ground and from that encouragement is given? Did God cause their examples to be recorded for your imitation or for your warning? Are they not set up as beacons so that you may avoid the rocks upon which they split? Are you willing to feel what they felt for sin? Do you dare to follow them in sin and plunge yourself into such distress and danger as they incurred? Listener, in these ways learn to keep your heart in the hour of temptation. The Time of Doubting and Spiritual Darkness The time of doubting and of spiritual darkness constitutes the tenth season when it is very difficult to keep the heart. When the light and comfort of the divine presence is withdrawn, when the believer from the prevalence of indwelling sin in one form or other is ready to renounce his hopes, to infer desperate conclusions with respect to himself, 
to regard his former comforts as vain delusions and his professions as hypocrisy. At such a time, much diligence is necessary to keep the heart from despondency. The Christian's distress arises from his uneasiness about his spiritual state, and in general he argues that he does not possess true religion, either from having relapsed into the same sins from which he had formerly been recovered with shame and sorrow, or from the sensible declining of his affections from God, or from the strength of his affections toward creature enjoyments, or from his enlargement in public while he is often confined and barren in private duties, or from some horrible suggestions of Satan with which his soul is greatly perplexed, or lastly, from God's silence and seeming denial of his long-depending prayers. Now, in order to establish and support the heart under these circumstances, it is necessary for you to become acquainted with some general truths which have a tendency to calm the trembling and doubting soul, and that you are correctly instructed regarding the above-mentioned causes of concern. Let me direct your attention to the following general truths. 1. Every appearance of hypocrisy does not prove the person who manifests it to be a hypocrite. You should carefully distinguish between the appearance and the predominance of hypocrisy. There are remains of deceitfulness in the best hearts. This was exemplified in David and Peter. But the prevailing attitude of their hearts was upright. They were not declared hypocrites for their conduct. 2. We should regard what can be said in our favor as well as what may be said against us. It is the sin of upright people sometimes to exercise an unreasonable severity about themselves. They do not impartially consider the state of their souls. To make their state appear better than it really is is indeed the damning sin of self-flattering hypocrites. To make their state appear worse than it really is is the sin and folly of some good people. But why should you be such an enemy to your own peace? Why read over the evidences of God's love for your soul as a man does a book which he intends to disprove? Why do you study evasions and reject those comforts which are due to you? 3. Everything which may be an occasion of grief to the people of God is not a sufficient ground for their questioning the reality of their religion. Many things may trouble you which should not cause you to stumble. If upon every occasion you should call in question all that had ever happened to you, your life would be made up of doubtings and fears, and you could never attain that settled inward peace and live that life of praise and thankfulness which the gospel requires. 4. The soul is not always in a suitable state to pass a right judgment upon itself. It is peculiarly unqualified for this in the labor of desertion or temptation. Such seasons must be used for watching and resisting rather than for judging and determining. 5. Whatever is the ground of one's distress, it should drive him to, not from, God. Suppose you have sinned thus and so, or that you have been thus long and sadly deserted. You have no right to infer that you should be discouraged as if there were no help for you in God. When you have fully contemplated these truths, if your doubts and distress remain, consider what is now to be offered. A. Are you ready to conclude that you have no part in the favor of God because you are dealing with some extraordinary affliction? If so, do you then rightly conclude that great trials are tokens of God's hatred? Does the Scripture teach this? Do you dare to infer the same with respect to all who have been as much or more afflicted than yourself? If the argument is good in your case, it is good in application to theirs and more conclusive with respect to them in proportion as their trials were greater than yours. Woe then to David, Job, Paul, and all who have been afflicted as they were. But had you passed along in quietness and prosperity, had God withheld those chastisements with which he ordinarily visits his people, would you not have had far more reasons for doubts and distress than you have now? B. Do you rashly infer that the Lord has no love for you because he has withdrawn the light of his countenance? Do you imagine your state to be hopeless because it is dark and uncomfortable? Do not be hasty in coming to this conclusion. 
If any of the dispensations of God to his people will bear a favorable as well as a harsh construction, why should they not be construed in the best sense? Would it not be possible that God has a design of love rather than of hatred in the trials under which you mourn? May he not depart for a season without departing forever? You are not the first who has mistaken the design of God in withdrawing himself. Scripture Zion said, The Lord hath forsaken me, and my Lord hath forgotten me. But was it so? What said the answer of God? Can a woman forget her sucking child? Isaiah chapter 49, verses 14 through 15. But do you collapse under the understanding that the evidence of a total and final abandonment are discoverable in your experience? Have you then lost your conscientious tenderness with regard to sin? Are you inclined to forsake God? If so, you have reason indeed to be alarmed. But if your conscience is tenderly alive, if you are resolved to cleave to the Lord, if the language of your heart is, I cannot forsake God, I cannot live without His presence, though He slay me, yet will I trust in Him, then you have reason to hope that He will visit you again. It is by these exercises that He still maintains His interest in you. Once more, are sense and feelings suitable to judge, and by which to judge the dispensations of God? Can their testimony be safely relied on? Is it safe to argue thus, If God had any love for my soul, I would feel it now as well as in former times, but I cannot feel it, therefore it is gone. Are you also going to conclude that when you cannot see the sun, it has ceased to exist? Read Isaiah chapter 1 verse 10. C. Now if there is nothing in the divine dealings with you, which is a reasonable ground for your despondency and distress, let us inquire what there is in your own conduct for which you should be so cast down. Roman numeral 1. Have you committed sins with shame and sorrow that you had previously recovered from? And do you then conclude that you sin purposely and habitually, and that your oppositions to sin were hypocritical? Do not give up everything as lost too hastily. Do you not earnestly repent and care as often as you commit sin? Is it not the sin itself which troubles you, and is it not true that the more often you sin, the more you are distressed? It is not so in customary sinning, of which Bernard excellently stated, When a man accustomed to restrain sins grievously, it seems insupportable to him. Yes, he seems to descend alive into hell. In process of time it seems not insupportable, but heavy, and between insupportable and heavy there is no small descent. Next, such sinning becomes light, his conscience smites but faintly, and he regards not her rebukes. Then he is not only insensible to his guilt, but that which was bitter and displeasing has become in some degree sweet and pleasant. Now it is made a custom, and not only pleases him, but pleases him habitually. At length, custom becomes habitual and natural. He cannot be dissuaded from it, but defends and pleads for it. This is allowed and customary sinning. This is the way of the wicked. But is not your way contrary to this? Roman numeral 2. Do you see a decline in your affections from God and from spiritual subjects? This may be your case, and yet there may be hope. But possibly you are mistaken with regard to this. There are many things to be learned in Christian experience. It has a relation to a great variety of subjects. You may now be learning what is very important for you to know as a Christian. Now, what if you are not mindful of the so lively affections, of such entrancing views that you had at first? Is your virtue not growing more solid and consistent, and better adapted to practical purposes? Does it then follow from you, not always being in the same frame of mind, or from the fact that the same objects do not always excite the same feelings, that you have no true religion? Perhaps you deceive yourself by looking forward to what you would be rather than contemplating what you are compared with what you once were. Roman numeral 3 If the strength of your love of creature enjoyments is the basis of the desperate conclusions regarding yourself, perhaps you argue this way. 
I fear that I love the creature more than God. If so, I do not have love for God. I sometimes feel stronger affections toward earthly comforts than I do toward heavenly objects. Therefore, my soul is not upright within me. If, indeed, you love the creature for itself, if you make it your end and religion is but a means, then your conclusion is correct. For this is incompatible with supreme love for God. But can a man not love God more ardently and unchangeably than he does anything or everything else, and yet, when God is not the direct object of his thoughts, can he not be sensible of more violent affection for the creature than he has at that time for God? As rooted malice indicates a stronger hatred than sudden, though more violent passion, so we must judge our love not by a violent motion of it now and then, but by the depth of its root and the constancy of its exercise. Perhaps your difficulty results from bringing your love to some foreign and improper test. Many people have feared that when brought to some eminent trial, they would renounce Christ and cleave to the creature. But when the trial came, Christ was everything, and the world was nothing in their esteem. Such were the fears of some martyrs whose victory was complete. But you may expect divine assistance only at the time of and in proportion to your necessity. If you would test your love, see whether you are willing to forsake Christ now. Roman numeral 4. Does the desire for growth in private that you see in public raise doubts and fears? Consider then if there are not some circumstances attending public duties which are peculiarly calculated to excite your feelings and elevate your mind, and which cannot affect you in private. If so, your exercises in secret, if performed faithfully and in a suitable manner, may be profitable, though they do not have all the characteristics of those in public. If you imagine that you have spiritual growth and enjoyment in public exercises, while you neglect private duties, doubtless you deceive yourself. Indeed, if you live in the neglect of secret duties, or are careless about them, you have great reason to fear. But if you regularly and faithfully perform them, it does not follow that they are vain and worthless, or that they are not of great value, because they are not attended with so much growth as you sometimes find in public. And what if the Spirit is pleased more highly to favor you with His gracious influence in one place and at one time than another? Should this be a reason for murmuring and unbelief, or for thankfulness? Roman numeral 5. The vile or blasphemous suggestions of Satan sometimes cause great perplexity and distress. They seem to lay open an abyss of corruption in the heart and say there can be no grace here. But there may be grace in the heart, where such thoughts are injected, though not in the heart, which consents to and nourishes them. Do you then abhor and oppose them? Do you utterly refuse to prostitute yourself to their influence and strive to keep holy and reverent thoughts of God and of all devout objects? If so, such suggestions are involuntary and are no evidence against your devotion. Roman numeral 6. Is the seeming denial of your prayers a cause of despondency? Are you disposed to say, if God had any regard for my soul, he would have heard my petitions before now, but I have no answer from him, and therefore no interest in him. Stop. Though God's abhorring and finally rejecting prayer is an evidence that he rejects the person who prays, yet do you dare to conclude that he has rejected you because an answer to your prayers is delayed, or because you do not see it if it is granted? Scripture. Shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him. Luke chapter 18, verse 7. Others have stumbled upon the same ground with you. Scripture, I said in my haste, I am cut off from before thine eyes. Nevertheless, thou heardest the voice of my supplications. Psalm 31, verse 22. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 44. Now, are there not some things in your experience which indicate that your prayers are not rejected, though an answer to them is deferred? Are you not disposed to continue praying, though you do not see an answer? Are you not disposed still to ascribe righteousness to God while you consider the cause of His silence as being in yourself? Thus David said, O my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. 
but thou art holy. Psalm 12, verses 2 through 3. Does not the delay of an answer to your prayers excite you to examine your own heart and test your ways, that you may find and remove the hindrance? If so, you may have reason for humiliation, but not for despair. Thus, I have shown you how to keep your heart in dark and doubting seasons. God forbid that any false heart should encourage itself from these things. It is lamentable that when we give Christians and sinners their proper portions, each is so prone to take up the other's part. When Sufferings for Religion Are Laid Upon Us The eleventh season, wherein the heart must be kept with all diligence, is when sufferings for religion are laid upon us. Blessed is the man who in such a season is not offended in Christ. Now, whatever may be the kind or degree of your sufferings, if they are sufferings for Christ's sake and the gospel's, spare no diligence to keep your heart. If you are tempted to shrink or waver under them, let what follows help you to repel and to overcome the instigation. 1. What reproach would you cast upon the Redeemer and His religion by deserting Him at such a time as this? You would proclaim to the world that, however much you have boasted of the promises, when you are put to the proof, you dare hazard nothing upon your faith in them. This will give the enemies of Christ an occasion to blaspheme. And will you thus furnish the triumphs of the uncircumcised? Ah, if you valued the name of Christ as much as many wicked men value their names, you could never endure that his should be exposed to contempt. Will proud, dust and ashes hazard death or hell rather than have their names disgraced? And will you endure nothing to maintain the honor of Christ? 2. Do you dare to violate your conscience out of complacence to flesh and blood? Who will comfort you when your conscience accuses and condemns you? What happiness can there be in life, liberty, or friends when inward peace is taken away? Consider well what you do. 3. Is not the public interest of Christ and His cause infinitely more important than any interest of your own, and should you not prefer His glory and the welfare of His kingdom before everything else? Should any temporary suffering or any sacrifice which you can be called to make be allowed to come into competition with the honor of His name. 4. Did the Redeemer neglect your interest and think lightly of you when He endured sufferings for your sake? Between His and yours, can there be any comparison? Did He hesitate and shrink back? No, He endured the cross, despising the shame. Did He with unbroken patience and constancy endure so much for you, and will you flinch from momentary suffering in His cause? 5. Can you so easily cast off the society and the privileges of the Christians and go over to the enemy's side? Are you willing to withhold your support from those who are determined to persevere and throw your influence on the scale against them? Rather, let your body and soul be torn apart. Scripture If any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. 6. How can you stand before Christ in the day of judgment if you desert Him now? Scripture Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed, when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Mark chapter 8, verse 38 In a little while the Son of Man will come in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory to judge the world. He will sit upon the throne of judgment, while all the nations are brought before him. Imagine yourself now to be witnessing the transactions of that day. Behold the wicked. Behold the apostates. Hear the consuming sentence which is pronounced upon them and see them sinking in the gulf of infinite and everlasting woe. Will you desert Christ now? Will you forsake his cause to save a little suffering or to prolong an unprofitable life on earth and thus expose yourself to the doom of the apostate. Remember that if you can silence the objections of conscience now, you cannot hinder the sentence of the judge then. By these means keep your heart that it will not depart from the living God. When sickness warns that death is near, 
The twelfth and last season, which I will mention, in which the heart must be kept with all diligence, is when we are warned by sickness that our death is at hand. When the child of God draws near to eternity, the adversary makes his last effort. Since he cannot win the soul from God, and since he cannot dissolve the bond which unites the soul to Christ, his great design is to awaken fears of death, to fill the mind with aversion and horror at the thoughts of disintegration from the body. Therefore, what shrinking from a separation, what fear to grasp death's cold hand, and what unwillingness to depart may sometimes be observed in the people of God. But we ought to die, as well as live like Christians. I will offer several considerations calculated to help the people of God in time of sickness, to keep their hearts loose from all earthly objects, and to be cheerfully willing to die. 1. Death is harmless to the people of God. Death's arrows have no sting in them. Why then are you afraid that your sickness may be unto death? If you were to die in your sins, if death were to reign over you as a tyrant, to feed upon you as a lion does upon his prey, if death to you were to be the precursor of hell, then you might reasonably be startled and shrink back from it with horror and dismay. But if your sins are blotted out, if Christ has vanquished death in your behalf so that you have nothing to encounter but bodily pain, and possibly not even that, if death will be to you the forerunner of heaven, why should you be afraid? Why not bid it welcome? Death cannot hurt you. It is easy and harmless. It is like taking off your clothes or taking a rest. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2, Isaiah chapter 62, verse 2. 2. It may keep your heart from shrinking back to consider that death is necessary to fit you for the full enjoyment of God. Whether you are willing to die or not, there certainly is no other way to complete the happiness of your soul. Death must occur to remove this veil of flesh, this carnal life which separates you from God before you can see and enjoy Him fully. Scripture Whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 6 Who would not be willing to die for the perfect enjoyment of God? I think one would look and sigh like a prisoner through the grates of this mortality. Oh, that I had wings like a dove, for then would I fly away and be at rest. Indeed, most men need patience to die, but a saint who understands what death will introduce him to rather needs patience to live. On his deathbed, he should look and listen for his Lord's coming. When he perceives his death is near, he should say, The voice of my beloved. Behold, he cometh leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. 3. Consider that the happiness of heaven commences immediately after death. That happiness will not be deferred until the resurrection. But as soon as you have experienced death, your soul will be swallowed up in life. When you have left this earthly shore, you will be quickly carried to the shore of a glorious eternity. Can you not say, I desire to die and to be with Christ? Did the soul and body die together, or did they sleep until the resurrection as some believe? It would have been folly for Paul to desire death for the enjoyment of Christ because he would have enjoyed more in the body than he could have enjoyed out of it. The Scripture speaks of only two ways in which the soul can properly live, that is, by faith and vision. These two comprehend its present and future existence. Now, if when faith fails and sight does not immediately follow, what would become of the soul? The truth on this subject is clearly revealed in Scripture. See John chapter 14, verse 3. What a blessed change death will then make in your condition! Wake up, dying saint, and rejoice. Let death do his work, that the angels may lead your soul to the world of light. 4. It may increase your willingness to die, if you reflect that by death God often removes his people out of the way of great troubles and temptations. When some extraordinary calamity is coming upon the world, God sometimes removes Christians out of the way of the evil. Micah chapter 7, verse 2. Thus, Methuselah died the year before the flood. Augustine died a little before the sacking of Hippo. Piraeus died just before the taking of Heidelberg. 
Luther observes that all the apostles died before the destruction of Jerusalem. Luther himself died before the wars broke out in Germany. Now it may be that by death you will escape some grievous trial which you could not and need not endure. But if no extraordinary trouble would come upon you if your life was prolonged, God may design by death to relieve you from innumerable evils and burdens which are inseparable from the present earthly state. Thus you will be delivered from indwelling sin which is the greatest trouble, from all temptations from whatever source, from bodily tempers and embarrassments, and from all the afflictions and sorrows of this life. The days of your mourning will be ended, and God Himself will wipe away all tears from your eyes. Why then should you not hasten to die? 5. If you still linger, like Lot in Sodom, what are your pleas and claims for a longer life? Why are you unwilling to die? Are you concerned for the welfare of your family members? If so, are you anxious for their earthly support? Then let the word of God satisfy you. Leave thy fatherless children, I will preserve them alive, and let thy widows trust in me. Jeremiah chapter 49 verse 11. Luther says in his last will, Lord, you have given me a wife and children. I have nothing to leave them, but I commit them unto you. O Father of the fatherless, and judge of widows, nourish, keep, and teach them. But are you concerned for the spiritual welfare of your relatives? Remember that you cannot convert them, even if you should live. Remember that God can make your prayers and counsels effectual when you are dead. Perhaps you desire to serve God longer in this world. But if he has nothing more for you to do here, why not say with David, Here am I, let him do to me as seemeth good unto him. He is calling you to higher service in heaven, and can accomplish by other hands what you desire to do here on earth. Do you feel too imperfect to go to heaven? Consider that you must be imperfect until you die. Your sanctification cannot be complete until you get to heaven. But, you say, I want assurance. If I had that, I could die easily. Consider, then, that a hearty willingness to leave all the world to be freed from sin and to be with God is the direct way to that desired assurance. No carnal person was ever willing to die upon this ground. Thus, I have shown how the people of God in the most difficult seasons may keep their hearts with all diligence.